Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull and this is Out of the Box. Every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person to roll through the stories and songs that have defined their life. I'm coming to you from land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and my guest is joining me remotely from Ngunnawal country. I want to take this moment to acknowledge that both of us are coming to you from unceded Aboriginal land. We pay our respects to Gadigal and Ngunnawal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. I think today's guest really encapsulates the spirit of Out of the Box and the way that our stories and our memories are so intertwined with the music that we listen to. Fred Smith is a diplomat and a musician and his life spans the globe. Today we're pouring over Fred's record collection and looking at the tracks he's made and listened to during some of the big moments in his life. I don't want to give too much away, we're just going to dive straight in. So Fred Smith, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Mm, Very happy to be here, Mia. Sometimes I like to follow these stories in chronological order, which means starting with the question, where did you grow up? I feel like for you, that question is a little bit more complicated. Can you tell me about that? I grew up all over the shop. (laughs) I I, uh, I was born in Canberra, but went to to India when I was six weeks old. And um, and after that to the Philippines and after that to... uh, well, after that to, to 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 Israel actually, and after that to the Philippines. Uh, so, my dad was in the uh, the diplomatic service, and so he moved around a lot. What's your earliest memory? Is it set in one of those countries? Yeah, looking down off an elephant in India. Actually, <laughs> we went for really. A yeah, we went for a ride on an elephant one time when I was about three, and, and I remember looking down, thinking, "Gee, it's a long way down." You said you lived in Israel as well. How old were you when you moved there? I was five when I moved there. Do you have any memories from that time? Uh, yeah, just playing in a very concrete, um, a concrete sort of play park at the school I went to, and uh, the kids there were a little rough. I think life was a little rougher for people from you know the Arabs and the Israelis, and um, and I was a little bit soft, I think. <laughs> and then the Philippines as well. What sticks out to you when you reflect on that period of your life? Well, it was quite a pivotal time in my life, you know. I, I mean, I'd taken music lessons before then, but uh, when I went to the Philippines, of course, there's a deep Spanish tradition. I learned um, classical guitar and how to play uh, play on a nylon string guitar in, in the Spanish style, and I think that kind of really yeah, influenced the, the way I played music. But also, um, you know, it was, it was it's a society with a real passion for for culture and music. Uh, they love. They love pop songs, and I listen to a lot of pop songs, the Beatles and all that stuff. But I think the other thing about a place like the Philippines, uh, same ex- India is the same extent, a lot of these tropical countries, is it's not like uh, sanitized places like Australia, like, you know, bad things happen out on the street. And, uh, of course, there was a, uh, a dictatorship that type, the Marcos dictatorship, and, 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 and the psychology of, uh, of, of that was in the air, but also... You know, just generally speaking, accidents happen and, and people don't go into quiet corners to die. And I remember one time I was playing uh, out in the street in the suburb where I lived in and um, I saw a fella get killed. It was a security guard and he went to try and get a monkey out of a tree with a, a metal pole. But it had been raining and, and, and the, power, the, power court, the power line sparked on the tree and he was electrocuted. And, uh, and it was my first sort of, you know, there's a time in all our lives when we become aware of mortality and... Uh, 
uh, and that was my first experience of mortality. And, um, and about 20 years later, I wrote a song called Dark Shadow. And we will jump into that song in a couple of minutes. I find that so interesting. I think we kind of come to know our mortality at some point in our childhood, but it's not from seeing someone drop dead on the street. I imagine, you know, growing up in the Philippines in an expat family, there might have been some kind of disparity between like you and the people around you. Am I right in saying that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, big wealth gap between, I mean, we lived in a wealthy suburb, but of course there were workers there. It was one of the workers, you know, who was killed and uh, they were on, it, it, yeah, it just became so very apparent to me that some people were on a different level of income than others and had a harder life, yeah. And you did say that this was the first time that music kind of entered your life. You were talking about learning to play music during this time. Was that something that your parents encouraged very much as well? Yeah, I mean, you know, they encouraged me to do everything, really. Tennis lessons, uh, everything. Um, music was just one of those things, but... Um, uh, and, um, and I wasn't particularly enthusiastic, I think, until I sort of found some freedom in it and found some expression and consolation in it. And, and then it became, it started to really get under my skin a bit. Yeah. That's not unusual, actually, for, uh, for kids to move around a lot. Uh, I've noticed that, like, a lot of the musicians I used to tour with in the States had parents who were in the military. You know, they, they build their own inner world to kind of give them some constancy and solace in a, in a very changing world. What did the inner world that you built look like? It was a little dark and frightened, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, and, the, and then when, yeah, when I was 10 onwards, it sort of, it was tinged with this sort of sudden realisation of mortality and uh, I made some attempts to, to do a deal out by uh, going to church and, and, and investing a bit in Christianity and uh, I was baptised in the local Episcopalian church and... Uh, uh, and that sort of gave me some hope of the afterlife for for a few years. Then the other thing I did to help me sleep was I started sleeping with a teddy bear whose name happened to be Fred, which was not my birth, <laughs> which was not my birth name. <laughs> Let's jump back into the song you mentioned earlier in the show. It's called Dark Shadow, and it's sung by my guest on Out of the Box, Fred Smith. Dark shadow, dark shadow, come out. Shows its face Follows me around From place to place that song was called Dark Shadow. It was by Fred Smith, who is my guest today on Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. Just now we were talking about Fred's early life, which he described as being all over the shop. He lived in a bunch of different countries. I want to go to a place that was perhaps a little bit more stable or, you know, where you <laughs> settled for a little bit longer. We're taking things back to Canberra, Fred. Walk me through your experience of boarding school there. Yeah, well, age 11, I went from, you know, the international school in Manila, quite uh, an urbane bunch of uh, uh, Neapolitan folk, um, um, to the to a boarding school in Canberra Grammar. And, um, I mean, these sort of classes in boarding school are about a dozen of us who entered in, in, in year seven and uh, in this little boarding house. And um, uh, two or three of us were diplomat kids, but the rest were these sort of rough Riverina country boys who um, were great fun and a little bit wild and just a little bit violent too. <laughs> so, 
<laughs> and it was all of us down on the sort of ground floor of a building and um um and and the seniors who had you know, year 11s were supposed to be looking after us were, were just inclined to beat us occasionally and <laughs> but they did it with a good sense of humor uh and i think it was it was the first time i really immersed in, in, in myself in that sort of a very rough element of australian culture and uh and you know that was where i got the name fred i just happened to sit on the wrong dining table one morning and someone said hey fred pass the milk and i made the mistake of doing so and ever ever since then i've been fred and uh the name has stuck <laughs> um <laughs> but also you know uh it was good fun and i think i developed a kind of sense of humor to deal with it but at the same time it was just a little bit frightening most of the time and um and, and at night at 10 o'clock i before i went off my mother bought me a list, this one of these little stereos which back then was you know the ducks nuts it was sort of this little silver thing but it had two speakers and uh uh, and, uh, and, a, and a headphone socket. So at 10 o'clock at night, I'd tuned into the radio, which played the top five at 10 songs like Mickey and Berserk Warrior um, and things like that. Um, and so I sort of disappeared. I found a way of disappearing into music, I think, uh, to find my, my solitude and, um, and peace. Um, but the other thing about boarding school was, um, you know, the kids there were not just playing the Beatles. They were playing Midnight Oil records, they were playing Dragon, they were playing Cold Chisel. Uh, there was this whole sort of 80s Aussie music that was coming out. I mean, it was pub rock, but gee, it was well written. Uh, yeah. And I remember one night sort of listening to the radio and, um, and amongst all the sort of American pop uh, on, on the top five, a song called I was only 19 by John Schumann cut through the, the headphones and I thought, you know, the, the hairs bristled on the back of my neck. It was a real story about about Australian an Australian person in an Australian accent. And um, and, I, and this song um, really got into me and I think has since affected the way I write songs and stories. Uh, most obviously, uh, the songs and stories I wrote from a time in Afghanistan. And yeah, later in the show, I want to dig further into your time in Afghanistan. I'm interested, Fred, in, you know, having spent the first 10 or 11 years of your life moving around in all these different countries with your family. And, you know, at the start of the show, we talked about what that meant for, you know, the child of an expat and the way you develop your own world. What did it mean to take those lessons back to boarding school? I don't know, I guess it gave me a certain adaptability, you know, uh, to read situations and uh, and relate to people with humour and, uh, uh, yeah, some ability to get along, I suppose, yeah. But at the same time, you know, I became quite outspoken, you know. I, I managed to sort of stand up to people every now and again and say, this is not right, you know, um, mm. uh, with an eloquence that sort of surprised them and stopped them in some ways, so... In some ways, itself, but also um, around that time, I, I think you know. Um, e- ever since I became appraised of human mortality, I became inclined to document things, you know. And it, I had a little camera, and I'd take photographs of, of events that would happen in the boarding house. For, you know, for example, if a day boy strayed too close to the front door, he would be dragged in, and everyone would pile up on top of him. And, and you know, my job would be to document how high the pile got in proximity to the roof, <laughs> which seems horrific in retrospect, but I think that instinct to document things um, decided to come to the fore in my, my early my early teens. Mm. 
Fred, I think you're such a great guest for this show because, you know, throughout it you've kind of infused the music that was playing in the background to some of the stories that you've been telling me and I want to kind of dive back into the music now. You are a musician after all, but you talked about your time in the Philippines as kind of first learning how to play on a nylon string guitar. Did you continue playing music when you were in Canberra as well? Through high school I did, you know, after I was home from boarding school for a period of time, say between, you know, let's say year nine and year 11 and, uh, you know, living out in the suburbs and suddenly I was lonely without all my pals from boarding house and um, and again the stereo kicked in and, um, and I listened to some of those 80s pop songs which were really well made and um, trying mm. to figure out how to play them on my guitar. I mean, I was going from Spanish classical guitar which I was learning, you know, in a technical sense, to, to being act- actually able to use the guitar to play pop songs and um, and songs that sort of resonated with me. And that was kind of a wondrous process, which culminated when I was about 17, when I started, me and a mate started playing covers in a, uh, well, it was a bar in Canberra, really. We got a job playing covers on a Friday night for two hours for 40 bucks. And my old, my, my friend's old man would drop us off at this place, and it was it looked straightforward enough, you know. It was initially a spaghetti restaurant called Spaggers, and and we'd get in the <laughs> corner there, and we'd play Simon and Garfunkel covers, and Beatles covers, and Neil Young, or whatever it was, and uh, all wholesome, really, you know, well crafted songs, which I think uh, I think I learned a lot from doing that. Um, and we'd wrap up at about um, nine o'clock, and just as we were leaving, you know. The barman would go out the back and come out in a pair of speedos and a belly button warmer. It suddenly turned into a date gay bar. Mm. It was just a really interesting place. And my old man, you know, my friend's dad would sort of whisk us out of there as quickly as he could. Um, but it was just interesting to see. It was a, a different uh, different shade to Canberra nightlife um, that differed from the spaghetti <laughs> restaurant we were eating at. Yeah, I wonder if the um, playlist changed much from Simon and Garfunkel when it went to a gay bar as well. Well, a little, little bit more Lola, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the kinks, yeah. <laughs> At this point in your life, I, I know you're playing covers with your friends, but did music ever seem like a viable career path for you? Oh, look, I think, it, you know, in the back of my mind, something, there was a part of me that hankered to do it. But I mean, I, not something I did anything about. I, I, I kept playing. I didn't write anything serious until I was 26. I don't think I had anything serious to, serious to say, you know. I mean, I just got on with life. I was... Like most artistic types, I was doing an economics law degree initially at the University of West Australia, and I finished that off at the ANU and uh, mm. emerged from that um, in around 1996. But around 94, 95, 96, I was living, I was living with guys who were actors in Canberra and who, you know, were working in theatre and, and storytelling. And, uh, and I fell under the influence of a fellow named David Branson, who... Uh, who was a Canberra impresario who, who used to put on sort of talent nights. And the basic rule was you could you could play anything you liked as long as it was original, you know, and I, and, and I did. And, I, and he said, you're on this Tuesday night. And I thought, shit, I better write a song. And I did. And I wrote this song uh, called The Ballad of Jose and Charmaine. It was a comical song about, you know, multiculturalism in Australia. And I got together with my actor mates and we put it together and performed it. And something... Suddenly it happened, you know, I'd never been quite at peace with what I was doing, studying economics and law, but suddenly I thought, ah, 
Now that feels right. Something suddenly mm. felt right about what I was doing. I mean, there's obviously no money in it there and no prospect of it making money, but I suddenly felt, well, this is a purposeful and useful thing to be doing with my time on Earth. Uh, there was something there that I'd been looking for that I stumbled into quite by accident. You know, and sort of this is a bit about 1995 and then 90, 1996, I, um, you know, I had my economics law degree and I applied to join the Foreign Affairs Department as part of the graduate intake and was selected um, <clears throat> in the top 30 from a field of about 3,000 graduates and started working there. But it was around that time that I started writing songs too. So it created a kind of uh, conflict really within me, a fork in the road. You know, I, could, I, I, was, I was torn between a, a promising career as a diplomat and an unpromising career as a folk singer. Uh, but instead of making any concrete decisions, I just reached the fork on the road and foraged over the railing into the nature strip and floundered around for a while, <laughs> trying to make them both work, really. And somehow I did, you know. Somehow I, I was playing at night and working during the day, and that was my life. Yeah, and in the next part of the show, I do want to leave that fork in the road and explore that nature strip a little bit further. But first we'll jump into a song, Fred. You did mention the track Only 19 earlier in the show. I feel like we should play that now. What do you reckon? Let's do it. Let's do it. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. This is John Schumann. The song is called Only 19. And the song was chosen by my guest on the show today, Fred Smith. And can you tell me, doctor, why I still can't get to sleep? Night times, just a jungle dark and a barking M16. Watch this rash that comes and goes. Can you tell me what it means? God help me. I was only 19. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, that song was called Only 19. It was by John Schumann, and the chooser was another musician, Fred Smith, my guest on the show today. And just before we jumped into that song, Fred, you were talking about this fork in the road and the binary, I guess, between a career as a musician and a career as a diplomat. You've ended up doing both, and I want to focus on that now. When did you first start working for DFAT? Gee, February, February of 1996, I started working with them. I started working in the South Asia section, which at the time covered everything from Bangladesh west to Afghanistan. And in that sort of, in that patch of land, there were three what we called intractable conflicts. One, of course, was uh, Kashmir. The second was Sri Lanka, and the third was Afghanistan, and at the time we just couldn't see how they would end. And it's interesting that um, as far back as then I started working on Afghanistan and, and looking at some very difficult problems. And yeah, Afghanistan would emerge as you know a major point of interest for you, and we will talk about that later in the show. In 99 you moved to Bougainville. What brought you there? Well, it had been a civil war there, uh, you know, that, you know, it was a, it was Papua, it was a, it was, it's the most easternmost island of Papua New Guinea. There'd been a huge mine there, and in the late 80s, some of the uh, local landowners didn't feel sufficiently compensated for what had been taken out of the out of the earth, and um, and they started an independence movement basically, and a civil war broke out, which was brutal and lasted eight years. And at the end of it, the Australian government got together at the request of the 
Papua New Guinea government and the Bougainville rebels and formed a peace monitoring group with New Zealand and Fiji and Vanuatu. Uh, and the curious thing about it was that it was the world's first unarmed peacekeeping group. Um, and so it was, it was me, uh, a handful of civilians and a whole bunch of soldiers. And we showed up there and, uh, course because we had no guns we had to communicate and so uh, I had my guitar with me and the people on the islands love music and play it and um, and suddenly everything that I was good at became useful I taught myself to speak Papua New Guinea pidgin started writing songs in the language and we started you know playing these sort of little tours like uh, I put together these uh, you know we'd jump into the back of a four-wheel drive and go out to a village me and a, and a, and a Fijian sergeant and a a Kiwi corporal medic and an Australian captain and uh, a Ni Vanuatu police officer and we'd set up under a tree and I'd start talking then I'd start singing and the soldiers would do the backing vocals which they hated and um, and we'd sing songs in pidgin and start uh, talking about developments in the peace processes all about trying to fill the information void and um, and build some optimism in a, in a process that uh, people had to believe in for it to work. Um, and um, it was just interesting to me that everything that I'd enjoyed and was good at became useful all at once, I suppose. And you almost sound nonchalant when you say that. You're like, oh, yeah, the, the music was useful and it worked out well for me. I'm sure there must have been some kind of turning point where you realised those skills would be applicable in this situation and that your musicianship could play a role in what you were doing in Bougainville. Was there a turning point? Yeah, yeah, one night, I mean, we were living in this sort of burnt-out shell of an old supermarket. Uh, when I say supermarket, I mean a shed which had, which used to sell stuff. Uh, and we had, um, above our porch, the only light bulb in town. And so one night I was sitting out there under, the, under that light bulb out on the porch playing the guitar and just singing along with the, the, the Fijian sergeant who played a bit of ukulele. And suddenly 200 faces appeared out of the darkness. And I thought, oh, here we go. <laughs> I better play something that they can understand, and so that was really what got got me started writing songs in pidgin and 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 songs that applied to their world. Um, uh, one in particular, I mean, some of the songs were quite serious about the cycle of violence and the experience people had had in the Bougainville conflict, but I I, I wrote one particular um, Dada reggae song called M Now. Bulmakau. Now in pidgin, M now means yes indeed, and Bulmakau means cow. So the song literally means yes indeed, cow. It was sort of a call and response, M now Bulmakau, and it became very popular on the island. The, the, the military, uh, the ADF, flew in a, uh, a recording desk and we recorded those songs and and the songs of five of local artists and distributed on, on, a, on a Songs of Peace cassette. 20,000 copies were distributed around the island, and this song, M, Nakao, M now Bulmakau, was the hit, you know got to a point where you could drive through a village in a four-wheel drive and call out the window, M now, and all the kids would cry out, Bulmaka! <laughs> <laughs> it became a thing. <laughs> I guess, it, you know, for people who are coming and going like us and serious soldiers and uniforms and things like that, I think it humanised us a bit. I think when we're talking about you doing music in this way, it's kind of music that's tied to your work as a diplomat. Has there ever been a period in your life where you've just been a musician, a full-time touring musician? Yeah, well, that never came about for me. It was something I always, I'd always yearned for. I'd always felt conflicted while I was working you know, in foreign affairs and it was taking up my time and all, all, all of that. Um, initially, I resented it. I don't anymore. But um, 
um, in around 2004, my wife got a job in the Australian Embassy in Washington, D.C., and so I took um, leave from foreign affairs and went over there with her and had the opportunity to work as a touring musician for three years, basically out of Washington, D.C., up and down the I-95, out east to places like Minnesota and Portland and through Canada. And, um, yeah, it was a great opportunity to, do, to get my flying hours up, really. And, um, I mean, it was tough initially. It's like any business is, it took a year and a half or so before I started getting any gigs, and there were some lonely times there for sure um, when I wondered what I was doing. But it did expose me to this, um, you know, to the, to the more free-range free life of, 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 of independent artists. In the States, that's a big call to make. I mean, there's no health insurance there, and, you know, there's, no, there's nowhere to fall, really. You know, and, uh, you know, one accident can, can wipe you out. But... Um, but, but I just encountered some great artists and great songwriters who knew their craft and I learned how to book gigs and to book travel itineraries and just to get my ass out on the road, you know. <laughs> um, so I learned a lot of craft and a lot of skills and um, a bit of initiative and, um, and stage time, but also, you know, encountered some great songwriters who you've never heard of, guys like Jonathan Bird and jo- Joe Jenks and Ice Mitchell um, and, but as I said, you know, it's a pretty lonely time until, until at one point I found myself at a festival in, in, in southern Texas in, near Austin called Kerrville, where people sit around at night. You know, there's the festival, there's the festival program which runs to 10 p.m., but then from 10 p.m. till about 4 in the morning, people sit around picking guitars and singing at each other. Uh, and it was then I came across the works of a Texas songwriter named Towns Van Zant, whose stuff I really could relate to uh, you know the guy meant it there's piss and vinegar in his stuff that uh, you can't argue with and I think my favorite song of his is Pancho and Lefty would you like to play it now let's spin it now huh? <laughs> <laughs> it's Punch on Lefty on FBI Radio 94.5 by Towns Van Sant well Lefty he can't sing the blues all night long like he used to Dusty poncho bit down south Ended up in Lefty's mouth A day that laid poor poncho low Lefty left for Ohio And where he got the bread to go You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by Fred Smith, who chose the song we just played. It was Punch on Lefty by Towns Van Zandt. And throughout this interview, Fred, we've kind of spoken about a couple of times Afghanistan. It keeps coming up and it's a place that you would revisit in your life. When did you first begin working there? 2009, basically. I came back from the United States in late 2007 and um, released an album called Texas about my experiences as a touring artist in the United States and reflecting on um, America as it was in the second term of Bush. Um, and um, and uh, I guess I was looking around for the next thing. And, you know, around 2009, I mean, Australia and the Allies had been in Afghanistan since 2001, but we came to understand really that if there were solutions to the problems of Afghanistan, they were partially political and not entirely military. And so NATO countries generally started sending in troops to work alongside their soldiers. And uh, and the Prime Minister at the time, Kevin Rudd, announced in April that year that Australia would be sending diplomats in to work alongside our soldiers in a province called Uruzgan province in southern Afghanistan. 
uh, and I'd had a bit of experience in war zones before, Bougainville, etc. And so I put up my hand for the job and got it and showed up in Uruzgan province in July 2009. Walk me through your first day there. Well, first day there, you know, the first thing that struck me was the dust. There's fine bloody dust everywhere. And the second thing I discovered uh, after being driven by the ADF, um, after arriving at the MNBTK, the multinational based Tarankout, and being driven by the ADF onto the base um, there in the MEO, the Middle Eastern Area of Operations, and uh, setting up in the uh, in a little uh, in a little office there in the MRTF headquarters, the Mentoring and Reconstruction Task Force headquarters, and listening to the stories of the boys who were living out in FOBs, forward operating bases, and COPS, combat outposts, and observing SOPs, standard operating procedures, TTPs, tactics, training, and procedures. Uh, after all that, I came I came to the conclusion that the joint they turned the joint into a TLA, a, you know, an ARE, an acronym rich environment. <laughs> you know, it was it was uh, <laughs> so it was the acronyms. But of course, the, the other thing that happened very early in my time there was I went for a ramp ceremony uh, uh, to a ramp. You know, ramp ceremonies are basically a funeral where they uh, they put the remains of a boy in a you know in a, a metal box and put it on the on the back of the Hercules aircraft. I went to a ramp ceremony for a young soldier named Ben Ronaldo who'd been killed by one of these IEDs up in the Baluchi Valley. And, uh, and it suddenly struck me that there were people out there uh, who, who, who wanted to kill us. And that's, that's quite a, a stark realisation. I wasn't, wasn't in Bougainville anymore. It wasn't benign, you know. Um, and I uh, became more and more interested in what had happened to Ben Renato that day. He was only 19 years old, a uh, young medic. And eventually got talking to the people in the two shop, the intelligence cell, and they let me know what happened that day and eventually read the inquiry report into his death, uh, through which I became aware of uh, the, the presence of a second soldier in, in the incident, a soldier by the name of Paul Warren. And, um, and I ended up writing a song from Paul's point of view about the situation called, uh, the song's called Dust of Urzgan. Were you living on a base in this period of your life? Yeah, it was on a base, a base about the size of an airport. Uh, you know, it had an airstrip built by the Russians initially, but later paved over by the Americans. And uh, we all lived in these sort of concrete bunkers or steel shipping containers and ate from a dining facility and um, went in and out of the base in uh, up-armoured uh, Bushmaster vehicles with uh, 20 of our closest friends armed to the teeth. There was a great camaraderie on the base, I've got to say. You know, it was, mm. it was a community. Um, uh, half of the people I was working with were Dutch. The other half were Australians, some Americans too. You know, two or three diplomats there. Um, but everyone else was soldiers. I was living in a shipping container with seven other soldiers. And um, um, in the privacy, you know, again, it's sort of a bit like boarding school. You find privacy in the early evening as you're going to bed and... I, had the, mm. I was fortunate to have the bottom bunk, and so I'd draw a curtain across and read as much as I could about Afghanistan, which is not a good thing to read before you're going to bed because the recent history is very violent. And, uh, but it did give me some sympathy for people who I, who I was not encountering, including women. I mean, I never met a woman in my entire 18 months in southern Afghanistan. They're not involved in public life down that far south, and uh, mm. that's an interesting reality, but I could imagine things from their point of view and wrote some songs from their point of view. I wonder if, you know, at the start of the show we were talking about having grown up as the child of an expat, what it means to kind of live that life alongside 
this disparity and the people living completely different lives around you, did that ever point to what it was like in Afghanistan for you? Yeah, I guess so. It gave me an instinct for trying to understand other people's realities, which was really my job, you know. Mm. I mean, my job was to sort of understand, uh, to, 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 to relate to tribal leaders, local warlords, and to provincial government officials and try and understand their reality. And, um, and, um, and what I discovered was that it was a very competitive reality. I mean, each tribal leader was vying with another tribal leader for con- control of resources and water and land and political influence. And um, in that, they really saw us as a source of power and resources. And we had to understand that that we weren't there to be Father Christmas. We were there to, you know, not, not to get caught up in other people's games, really. I feel like it goes without saying that Afghanistan re-entered everyone's periphery last year when the troops are being withdrawn. What do you remember from that event? Well, to take a step back, you know, I worked in Afghanistan in 2009, 2010, went back in 2013, but wrote a lot of songs about my time in Afghanistan during my time there and put out an album uh, around 2011 called Dust of Uruzgan, which had a dozen of those songs. And I ended up building a show around my experiences in Afghanistan. It was called Dust of Uruzgan. I toured it to around 80 regional theatres around the country. It seemed to help people in Australia develop some understanding of what we were doing there and, and what the challenges were and what we achieved and what we didn't. And I toured that show around Australia between 2014 and about 2018. Uh, and then moved, started to move on to other things. But then sort of late 2019, uh, um, I was at a loose end and um, decided to apply for the job in the, in the embassy in Kabul. And I got the job and went there just as the pandemic started in April 2020 and worked in the embassy for a year until about April of 2021, at which point the embassy closed. And, uh, well, President Biden had said he would be withdrawing the troops. And so, uh, you know, the security situation started to look worrying. And all through that year that I was working in the embassy in Kabul, we were reading reports of the Taliban becoming increasingly dominant in the areas around the cities, um, holding the roads and things like that. And, um, and our staff, our local staff, were getting increasingly worried. The Taliban were conducting a series of targeted assassinations in the city of Kabul that was really undermining confidence <clears throat> in the Afghan government and connection between the people. It was really oppressive and, 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 and becoming quite a scary place, um, uh, particularly for our local staff. And so I sort of witnessed the beginning of the end as... Um, Trump's peace deal led into Biden's uh, undertaking to leave, to pull American troops out of Afghanistan. Um, and then our, our embassy closed and I was ended up working from Doha, uh, from a Doha hotel on Afghanistan uh, through a series of virtual meetings in the sort of summer of, northern summer of 2021 last year, working on the aid program and, and trying to build up confidence in the Afghan government uh, at a time when confidence was waning quite clearly. Uh, and then, of course, in early August, it all fell apart very quickly. Uh, even people like me who'd been watching it a while were surprised by the speed of the fall as each province fell one by one than another. And, uh, you know, I watched all this unfold on TV and was reporting on it in my work. And um, then, of course, the 15th of August, um, the Taliban took over the city of Kabul. The president fled for Dubai. The, the Taliban swept into the city. 
There was widespread panic and people rushed to the airport and climbed the fences and um, and flooded the tarmac. Uh, and it looked pretty worrying. And then that night my boss said to me, hey, um, let's go to the airport. We better go and do some work there. And so on the 17th, I was part of an advance team that flew to Kabul airport and started working on evacuating people from the airport. I mean, when we flew in, we expected there to be a couple of hundred people waiting for us to catch the return flight back to the UAE. Um, but in fact, there were only 26 that first night because there was these horrendous kind of human log jams at the gates of the airport. You know, so many people were trying to get in that the Marines had had to block the gates and, and filter them through so as not to create a, uh, you know, a stampede. And um, so people were struggling to get in. And uh, I never, I went and saw those gates on the 19th of August. And um, it was a deeply surprising experience just to witness that that human desperation firsthand. You know, I mean, there was a kind of razor wire perimeter uh, and, and me and a bunch of soldiers on the inside of that perimeter next to the gate. And beyond it were two or 3,000 people sort of bustled, bunched in together in the hot sun, crying out for help and <clears throat> pushing and jostling against each other. Those at the back push, trying to push forward to get through and those at the front pushing back so as not to get jammed into the razor wire and saw an old woman dangling a baby over that razor wire. And uh, it was just the, the most, uh, you know, I've been writing and reading about Afghanistan for years, but I'd never seen firsthand that level of human desperation um, in my life. And, um, you know, in the end, we got quite a system going then. We managed to extract 4,100 people. Um, but, um, but the, you know, the experience, I think, took its toll on, 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 on everyone involved. And uh, I went into hotel quarantine when I came back and found myself writing this song called The Gates of Kaya, The Gates of Kabul International Airport. Back here in Australia, you know, we watched on in horror and pity and I can't fathom how visceral it would have been for you to experience that firsthand. And throughout the show today, Fred, we've kind of talked about the songs that you've written through the different experiences of your life. And I'm sure that you wrote a few songs from this, which we can see coming up as well. You're doing some shows in Australia soon. Can you tell me about those? Yeah, so, you know, I've been telling the Afghanistan story through through a stage show, really, ever, ever since I was, ever since 2011. And, of course, the show has evolved as, as my own experience has evolved. And I've built this last iteration of the show, um, which starts in, from our experiences in Uruzgan and ends uh, from the work we were doing at Kabul Airport after the, the fall of Kabul. And uh, it, it adds up to a fairly robust and complete account of of what we were doing there and why and what we got right and what we got wrong and um uh you know for anyone curious about the afghanistan i think we have all we all have a right to be since so australia invested so much in it and so many countries did and uh, as you say we all watched in horror and pity as it all fell apart uh um i think this show offers people a lot and it offers people some some account of what it was that you know 3300 Afghans came to Australia following the evacuation and um, I think it's good to get a sense of their experiences and, and just the courage that they showed to, to get through the gates of Kabul airport that day and uh, and and 
just what an opportunity we've given them to, to, to start life anew here and just how keen they are to, to live it. Uh, you know, I've been in touch with my interpreters since who we got through that day and their kids are doing swimming lessons and they're going to school and they've got, you know, mm. they can play in the front yard. They couldn't even do yeah. that in Kabul. They couldn't go outside. It was too dangerous. You know, I mean, it's just we we we've changed people's lives uh, for the better. And if there's some, if there's any sort of consolation to be drawn from the Afghanistan experiences, that is that we have we have given people that opportunity. And what's the show called that you have coming up? I think I'll call it Gates of Kaya, um, and details of all my shows, including the Sydney show will be on my website, www.fredsmith.com.au. haven't quite pinned down a Sydney date, but I'm working on it, so watch this space. <laughs> yeah, I'll put the details of that one up on the programs page on fbiradio.com. Sydney date to be confirmed, but we do have a confirmed Batemans Bay date that's happening on Saturday the 23rd of April this year, and we do have a confirmed Braidwood date as well happening at the National Theatre Braidwood um, on the 24th of April 2022. You did just mention a song that you wanted to end with, Fred. I'll play that one now. Thank you so much for joining me on Out of the Box, Fred. It's been really um, insightful speaking to you. Is there anything you wanted to add before you head off? No, no, I think we've covered it, eh? Amazing. Well, yeah, Yeah. this... This song is by Fred Smith, my guest today on Out of the Box. It's called Gates of Kaya. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you did want to listen back to this episode, you can do so via the programs page on fbiradio.com where I will put all the details to Fred's upcoming shows and the things that he's spoken about today. You can also find the full track list as well. You can listen back via the podcast too if you like. I want to give a huge shout out to my producer Tash for doing all of the research for this episode and to Sam Dover for editing it. Thanks so much. Stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. I've seen the remnants of the Roman fleet Sifted embers from the February fires I've read of Carthage and the fall of Crete Nothing surprised me till the gates of Carthage